Father, we confess that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from your mouth. We want it to be our food to do your will. We confess, too, that your word says that we are grass. We are fleeting. The grass withers and the flower fades, but your word stands forever. So we pray, would you speak your word to us now? Speak to us. For your servants are listening. For Jesus' sake, amen. Our 21st century moment obsesses over identity. Whether it's ethnic or economic, sexual or social, our family of origin or just our fanaticism for our favorite sports teams, we love to identify ourselves. Isn't this why we saw so many men see Top Gun and they immediately bought a pair of cheap aviator sunglasses? Because we love to identify with success. I mean, clearly I would never do that. A lot of men that I know have done it. Our identity craze is the reason that we've seen the proliferation of genealogy services like Ancestry.com, genetic services like 23andMe. Who am I? I want to answer that question. Our preoccupation with identity has now made it fashionable to choose pronouns like accessories to our most recent identity outfit. At our most vehement, we demand to be taken seriously for the identities we either discover or create for ourselves. Identity, our own identity, as we define it, has become sacrosanct. Nobody can touch it. It's inviolable. You are not allowed to disagree with me about who I say I am. And if anybody has the audacity to question who we say we are then we can be quick to take offense and we answer such a question with a question of our own. Who do you think you're talking to? Or if we want to put an accusatory spin on it, we'll ask, who do you think you are to talk to me without recognizing my identity as I define it? But of course, our obsession with identity is nothing particularly new, and our offense at feeling misidentified is also perennially human. In fact, if you'll turn with me to John 8, verses 30 to 59, John 8, 30 to 59, we'll see that when Jesus implicitly contradicts our own assumed identities, humanity asks him two questions, both with an attitude of personal offense that turns pretty quickly to moral outrage. 
We asked Jesus, who do you think we are? And when he tells us who he thinks we are, we then ask Jesus, who do you think you are? If you look there in verse 44, the central contention of the Jews is we are Abraham's offspring and have never been slaves to anyone. So their central question is, how is it that you say you will become free? Translation, who do you think we are? Assuming that we are slaves. We don't think we're slaves. We didn't tell you we are slaves. And then their central question in verses 48 to 49, or 48 to 59, is in verse 53. What do you, who do you make yourself out to be? So when Jesus tells them what he thinks they need, they ask, who do you think we are? That you think we need what we need? And when he tells them who he thinks they are, they respond, who do you think you are? And yet Jesus does not bow to how we define or distort either our own identity or his. He is not intimidated by our moral outrage against him. Jesus knows he's right about us and about himself, no matter how vehemently or even violently we protest. So let's read all the way through the passage to hear Jesus in his own voice. And then we'll think about those two questions that humanity asks Jesus. Who do you think we are and who do you think you are? Follow along with me from verse 30 of chapter 8. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth. And the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, 
Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Who do you think we are? This is the question that they are asking him. In verses 30 to 47, Jesus is talking to Jews who at some level believe in him. Some level. He tells them if they stick with him and his teaching, they'll really be his disciples and the truth will set them free. But that rubs them the wrong way because he's implying they're slaves. They're not free. Not yet. And that threatens their identity. So they get defensive. We are, identity statement, we are offspring of Abraham. We have never been enslaved. So how do you say, of us, of us, you will become free? We are free. You don't know who you're talking to. Who do you think we are? You don't seem to understand our identity. Exegete your audience, Jesus. We're not just anybody. We've always had God's truth. We are heirs to God's promises. To Abraham, we have always been free, and we will never not be free. So apparently, they will believe in Jesus, but only until he challenges their understanding of themselves. If he does that, all bets are off. Now they're angry, resentful, defensive, and they're back to wanting to kill him for challenging their identity. They see themselves through rose-colored glasses. But Jesus doesn't wear glasses. 
So Jesus explains in verses 34 to 36 that anyone who sins is a slave of sin. And sinner slaves get kicked out of the house. But Jesus is God's son, and as such, he has authority and willingness to free slaves and earn them a place in the Father's house. Jesus grants that they are Abraham's physical offspring, but Jesus' words about them throw them into defensive resentment and eventually homicidal rage, which shows zero family likeness to Abraham. And in the background, you can almost hear echoes of, Israel, of Isaac and Ishmael. Who's the slave and who's the son? Jesus and these Jews are actually from different spiritual fathers. Oh, they're Abraham's genetic offspring, but they have none of his spiritual DNA. They've created a false spiritual identity for themselves based on their heritage And Jesus calls them out on it based on their actions. You are not who you are presenting yourself to be. You got a fake ID. I don't believe you are who your fake ID says you are. Someone else, someone more sinister is their spiritual father. Again, they they insist that they know who they are. Abraham is our father, but Jesus doesn't buy it. And he's not going to let them sell it, even to themselves. They claim Abraham's heritage, yet when Jesus tells them the truth about their sin, they want to kill him for it, and he knows it. That's not very Abrahamic of them, is it? So who's their real daddy? Who does Jesus think they are? Well, if they want to kill him precisely because he's telling them the truth, that's not a good sign. They double down again in verse 41. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. It's not crystal clear. They may be defending themselves against being the product of mixed ethnic religious marriages like Samaritans. Because that's what they're going to eventually accuse Jesus of being. They view themselves as purebred Israelites, 100% spiritual stock. Now not just Abraham's line, but as God's own children. But escalating from Abraham to God shows that they're starting to realize what Jesus has been implying about their spiritual stock all along. And Jesus makes it explicit in verses 42 to 44. If God were your father, you would love me because I'm his son. And I came in obedience to my father's command. So you don't understand me, Jesus says. You don't understand me. Precisely because you cannot stand to hear my word. And you can't stand what I'm saying because you are not who you think you are. You are sons of the devil. It's no wonder you hate truth and want to murder me for speaking it. The devil was a liar and a murderer from the start, and you resemble him because you are from him. You would rather believe his lies than my truth because that's what comes naturally to you. Like father, like son. Jesus says that. So to sum up, Jesus offers to free them from their slavery to their sins. 
They ask, who do you think we are that you can talk to us like that? Jesus' answer is that I think you are sin's slaves and Satan's sons. And he weaves together three arguments proving they are Satan's sons. For starters, their actions exhibit their identity. They're trying to kill Jesus for telling the truth, similar to Satan's homicidal hatred for truth. Just like Satan lied in order to kill Adam, so now they cannot stand Jesus' truth and want to kill him as the second Adam. He says, I speak what I have seen from my father, God, and you do what you heard from your father, Satan. But that's not all. Their affections, second argument, also exhibit their identity. Their affections also exhibit their identity. They don't love Jesus. Therefore, they cannot be from God because Jesus is from God. And finally, their identity is precisely what inhibits their ability to understand Jesus and agree with him. It's your identity that inhibits your ability. You can't because of what you are. Their identity is not the solution or the excuse. It's the problem. The reason they don't understand or agree with Jesus is they love lies, which proves that they are just like their father, the devil. There is nothing in them that resonates with Jesus' teaching. They literally don't have it in them to love Jesus or his word. In fact, everything that is in them militates against what Jesus is saying. Jesus' word finds no place in them because what's in them is not of God. They don't speak the family language because they're not part of the family like they think they are. That's about enough to blow your eyebrows off. This is not easy stuff to hear. So what do we do with a Jesus who speaks like this? How do we respond to this first exchange with Jesus? Well, we should learn, first of all, that only persevering faith in Jesus is saving. Only persevering faith in Jesus is saving. Jesus says, point blank, if you, if you remain in my word, if you stay, stay put, then, then you will know the truth that sets you free. You see, that's the opposite of what we like to think today, right? That's the opposite of the modern scientific mind. You do not know the truth and then on that basis remain in my word. It's the other way around. You remain in my word and that is the only way you come to know the truth in the first place. Truth is not something knowable apart from remaining in Jesus' word. Jesus teaches you truth. You stick with Jesus and his teaching, and then you know the truth. To decide the truth question apart from Jesus does not result in the freedom of knowledge or the knowledge of freedom. It results in the slavery of ignorance and the ignorance of slavery. So again, Jesus is talking to people who had believed in him in verse 30. Yet by verse 46, Jesus himself will say twice, you do not believe in me. They believed, 
something about Jesus for a while. But their belief did not make it even through this conversation with Jesus. Ever since the end of chapter 2, John's reminded us that many believed in Jesus to start, but Jesus doesn't trust in their belief. They see signs, they eat the bread, they want to make him king, but the more he teaches, the less they agree. It's like the parable of the soils. The gospel sprouts, may even bear leaves, but the deceitfulness of riches, the pleasures of life choke out the word, persecution withers it. Jesus challenges their identity, and the gospel never bears fruit. 1 John 2, 19, they went out from, from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all are not of us. That was happening already in Jesus' ministry. Not everyone who initially believes in Jesus perseveres in Jesus. Jesus told us that. So don't be surprised or disillusioned when people abandon him. But believer, you make sure you persevere yourself. You make your calling and election sure. And you help others here in this church do the same. One corollary to the need for persevering faith is that baptism is not for pretended disciples. It's for persevering disciples, proven disciples. This doesn't mean that we withhold baptism for decades, but the reality of temporal faith means that churches are wise to wait to baptize professing new converts until they've shown at least initial signs of clear, solid, sacrificial repentance. Baptism is the church's official recognition of a Christian's conversion. It says that we think you are a person who has been baptized spiritually into Jesus' death and resurrection, and it's our congregation's affirmation that we think someone is saved. So while we want to see lots and lots of baptisms, we also want to be careful we're baptizing proven disciples, not just pretend disciples. And of course, we know that we cannot do that infallibly, but we should do it responsibly. Another implication of this first exchange with Jesus is that we are not as free as we think we are. Jesus does not even think that Jews who love God's law are free in their spirits. The truth will set you free. Therefore, I am not free by my nature or by my nationality or by my rationality. Jesus thinks you and I are not free by nature. We sin, sin enslaves, and we are voluntary, happy slaves to our sin by nature. We are not coerced into sin by others against our will. Nobody has to put a gun to my head to make me sin. But we are compelled to sin by our own nature, by our heart's tastes, by our leanings and our loves. Again, nobody has to point a gun to our head to get us to sin. We don't sin because we're forced into it. We sin because we don't want to miss out on the fun of it. We don't go into sin kicking and screaming. We go in dancing and singing. We're looking forward to it. Society then does not have to coerce me to sin against my will. My sin nature compels me to sin 
according to my will. And it comes so naturally to us that we don't even see anything wrong with it. We actually defend our right to sin. After all, how could something that feels so natural be so wrong? Isn't that our argument? So even if we are free from coercion, no gun to my head, we are not free from compulsion. I can't, be, I can't wait to be alone so I can. We have a compulsive urge to sin. The only person who had a genuinely, genuinely free will was Adam. And look what he chose to do with it. Adam represented us in his sin. That is why the second Adam, Jesus, has to come and represent us by his righteousness and obedience. And that is why he alone can free us by the truth of his gospel and the power of his resurrection life poured out into our hearts by his spirit. And that is why we must be born again. Born from above. Because we need a new nature from God that is not enslaved to sin like our old nature. Our old nature is never going to repent. We need a new nature positively inclined to righteousness. We are voluntary slaves of sin, and yet our slavery does not negate our responsibility. Our inability does not cancel our responsibility. We are slaves to sin, that's true, but we are slaves by nature and therefore by preference and even choice. We have a natural taste for sin. What that means is there is literally something wrong, morally wrong with us. I have a natural taste for sugar. I love sugar. I love honey. I love anything with sugar. I love chocolate. I have to rein that appetite in. If I don't rein that appetite in, whose fault is it? It's my fault. I can't just say, well, it's not my fault. I love chocolate. It just comes natural to me. I love sugar. Therefore, I can't help it. Well, I can't help it is the problem, not the excuse. I am the problem. Society is not the problem. Other people in the church are not the problem. TV is not the problem. Internet is not the problem. I am the problem. My nature is the problem. It is wrong for me to have a taste for sin. The fact that sin comes so naturally to me does not excuse my sin. It aggravates it. And even though I may be addicted to my sin, my addiction is my fault. If I find sin too good to resist, that's my fault. The drug addict is obligated to stop shooting up even though he cannot. So a wrong thing doesn't become right simply because I cannot resist it. It's still wrong, and I am still morally obligated to stop. That is the tragedy and helplessness of the human condition. We are all helplessly and even happily addicted to our own sins by nature, and yet our inability to stop does not cancel our responsibility to stop. We still have a moral obligation to stop sinning and to start obeying, and we are unable to discharge that responsibility unless the Son of God, Christ Jesus, makes us free. And yet that is good news. There is a real way to freedom for sinners who are enslaved 
to their sins. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Jesus alone can and will open heaven's door for you. Jesus is the Son who remains in the Father's house forever. He has the key. He can let you in. The slave does not have that privilege. But if the son makes the slave free, then the former slave to sin can become a son to God and so stay in the father's house as an adopted heir. The reason that can happen is that Jesus perfectly kept God's word for all those who will ever trust in him. And when we trust in him, God credits us with Jesus' obedience and righteousness and treats us as he treats Jesus like a son and heir, not like a slave. What this means is that salvation in Jesus is not just from the penalty of the sin, but from the power of my sin over me. Jesus saves us not just from the sentence of sin in hell, but also from our slavery to its power over us now. He can break that appetite. And Jesus was being honest when he said, that God the Father himself sent Jesus for just that purpose. That is Jesus' word that you must stick with, abide in, in order to know truth and be freed by it. Take him at his word. Don't hate him for telling you the truth about yourself. Love him for that. We should also recognize from this first exchange between Jesus and these Jews that Jesus does not consent to how we use group identities to justify ourselves and scapegoat others. Jesus does not consent to how we use membership in group identities to justify ourselves and scapegoat others. Jesus implies the Jews are enslaved to sin. The Jews defend themselves by taking refuge in their identity group. We are sons of Abraham, corporate, plural, ethnic, with ethical overtones. And therefore, we cannot be slaves to sin as you say we are. Jesus does not buy that line. And he does not let you sell it to yourself or others either. He says, point blank, I know you are Abraham's physical descendants. The problem is you're not acting like it. Group identity does not exonerate, not even for these Jews who are having a face-to-face conversation with Jesus himself. No one is innocent based on membership in a human identity group. Whether that group is perceived to be privileged or oppressed or some combination of both. No identity group is exempt from needing the freedom and forgiveness found only in Jesus. If the Jews themselves were not exempt, then neither is any other group. Whether ethnic or economic, social or sexual, membership in an identity group is no defense when it is your soul that makes you guilty. Josh Mitchell at Georgetown University has recently noticed that identity politics presents us with an anti-gospel. That's what he says. Whereas Protestants identify Christ as the only truly innocent one, In identity politics, groups of mere mortals purport to be innocent. Instead of all Adam's heirs being stained, only white heterosexual men are. 
in the world of identity politics, there is no forgiveness of transgression because political power accretes from debts that cannot be discharged. To forgive is therefore to lose hold on political power. And in the most potent form of this new religion, we should not and need not wait for Jesus to return and redeem the world. We should instead treat nature as the cosmic victim of an oppressor class, humanity. And it's up to us to save it from the clutches of Western colonialism and big oil, which will usher in the green millennium purged of all pollution and run on clean energy so that we can all feel pure. So that is, that is more than Christian creation care. It's humanity trying to redeem itself and save the world. But in the biblical gospel, only Jesus is innocent because he alone is the God-man born of a virgin. Every single person from every people group in humanity is guilty, tainted by original sin in Adam. No one from any identity group is exempt from needing Jesus' innocent blood to atone for their sins and his righteousness to cover their guilt. And Jesus came precisely so that he could obey where we all disobeyed. And then to endure the, the curse of our disobedience in our place for our sins, regardless of our color or our culture, for all who will ever turn from our sin to trust in him. This gospel, the real gospel of Jesus, this is the way for us to stop scapegoating and demonizing other groups. Because God scapegoated Jesus for everyone from every group who will trust in him. And Jesus is creating a new humanity from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation to honor him as we honor the Father. He's not alienating groups. He's bringing them together in himself. And at the right time, Jesus will come from heaven to culminate history and make all things new in a way that is beyond our comprehension, much less our competence to accomplish. Our innocence, then, is only restored by identifying ourselves with Jesus as God's designated innocent scapegoat. And because God scapegoated Jesus, we do not have to scapegoat or demonize other groups. But the Jews talking with Jesus are not ready to admit any of this. In fact, they show their anger at Jesus by asking a second question, not who do you think we are, but who do you think you are? They move to accuse. And they reverse the charges. Who do you think you are? Verses 48 to 59. In verse 48, the Jews are just as fed up with Jesus as modern man is today. What did he just say about them? Verse 44, you are of your father the devil. So what did they say about him in return? Same thing. With all the self-assurance they can muster. Are we not right in saying you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? Very self-confident and very wrong. It's a theme we're beginning to see in John. People are incredibly confident that they are right about Jesus, and they could not be further from the truth. It's a caution to us. You're the satanic one, not us. We're the good guys. You're the bad guy. They're gaslighting him again. But look, if you compare the way they're talking about Jesus to the way even the demons talk about Jesus, even the demons don't talk about Jesus like this. In the Gospels, 
You remember? Demons see Jesus in the Gospels, and they say things like, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. Or, we beg you, don't torment us, just send us into these pigs. They recognize who he is and what he can do and how they should relate to him. The whole form of their question, though, here is cocksure that they know better. They know Jesus better than Jesus knows himself. We know who you are better than you do. The form of the question assumes they don't even need to ask it. Are we not right? Are we not right? They're starting a sentence, are we not right to Jesus? Cocksure and totally wrong. Unbelieving humanity thinks and talks of Jesus just like that still today. This Jesus, this Jesus, the Jesus who talks like John 8, this Jesus is everything that is wrong with the world today. Unbelieving humanity says. His view of himself, his view of humanity, his whole world view, his assumption that even the best of us are enslaved in sin and need him, of all people, to liberate us. That binary worldview of God and Satan, good and evil, heaven and hell, that's what's wrong with the world. That's what we're trying to purge the world of. That worldview is not the solution. It's the problem, according to the modern mindset. We're more righteous than this Jesus, the world says. We are more tolerant, more inclusive, more accepting, far more understanding than he is. And people talk about him like that precisely because he talks about us like this. Humanity demonizes Jesus for telling us the truth about ourselves. But Jesus is not going to acquiesce to how we think about ourselves just because we criticize him for it. He doesn't buy it. He knows who he is, even if we don't know who he is. And he's not going to let us tell him who he is. You can't relate to Jesus like that. Not and expect him to save you. And yet look at how patient Jesus is with such people in verse 49. I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I don't seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. He is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. So first, he's not at all convinced that we're right about him. He's confident that we're wrong to say he has a demon. He's confident that he honors his Father. And so by dishonoring Jesus, they dishonor the God who sent them. That's his implication. But they call that God their Father. They're contradicting themselves. In verse 50, he entrusts himself, his ministry, reputation, holy to God. Jesus doesn't even seek his own glory. He trusts his Father to glorify him. He trusts his Father to judge between their opinion of him and his own knowledge of himself. He is deferring all of his glory, all of his vindication to God. And then in what has to be one of the most surprising turns, in one of the most surprising chapters of all the Bible, Jesus offers these critical, angry, self-righteous people Mercy. Look at 
Look there again in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. His offer is still on the table. You and I would have walked away from that table. But it's still there. Same as it was in verses 31 to 32, even after they have been so disrespectful to them since, to him since then. It's almost an unbelievable patience. Grace, mercy, compassion. Reminds you of 1 Peter 2. He did not revile, nor was there any deceit found in his mouth, but he kept on entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Don't you want to be that kind of evangelist with people? Don't you want to be more patient with unbelievers like that? Yet what do they do with his offer of mercy? This is tragic. They double down and they use it against him in verse 52. Oh, now we know you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, and yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets all died. Who in the world do you make yourself out to be? See, they think they're fact-checking Jesus. Now we know. I mean, they're even more confident than they started out. You say that if anybody obeys you, they won't die. But Abraham and the prophets died. Boom. Got you. Open and closed. So you're saying, we're going to play that game with Jesus. We're going to put the worst face on your argument. We're going to show you how badly we're misunderstanding what you're saying. So you're saying, did you hate it when people do that? They're doing it to Jesus. So you're saying they died because they didn't obey you? Who talks like that? Abraham could have escaped death if he had obeyed you? Man, that's maniacal. Especially from a Jewish standpoint. Who do you make yourself out to be? Of course, they're misunderstanding Jesus. They assume he's talking about physical death when he's talking about the second death, eternal death. Condemnation forever in hell. They're offended that Jesus is making himself out to be greater than Abraham. So Jesus addresses both questions, first about himself, then about Abraham. He says, okay, all right, let me explain. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. If it is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I'd be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Jesus does not have identity issues like us. He knows exactly who he is. He is who his Father in heaven glorifies him to be in his miracles, in his teaching, in his life, death, resurrection. We are the ones with the identity problem because in our own sin nature, we claim God as our Father, and yet we deny God's paternity of Jesus. In fact, we have an honesty problem. To deny Jesus as God's Son and yet to call God our God or our Father, that is to lie both about Jesus and about ourselves. In this passage, it is literally Jesus' word versus ours. Who knows God? Jesus or humanity? 
Jesus keeps God's word flawlessly. And look at Jesus' argument. The Father who glorifies Jesus is the same God they say is theirs. But if they had known the God who glorified Jesus, they too would glorify Jesus because God sent him. So for Jesus to submit to their opinion of him, that would be ungodly. So if you fail to understand that the Father glorifies Jesus, you prove that you don't know God the Father. If you knew the Father, you would recognize his image in his Son. If he is your God, why don't you recognize his authorized image in Jesus? You don't know him, Jesus says. So for Jesus to acquiesce, for Jesus to give in to your misunderstanding of him would make him a liar. Jesus said that. You can't redefine Jesus without making him a liar. So friend, if you attempted to change Jesus, to modernize him in order to popularize him, you are not helping Jesus. You are saying that Jesus lied about himself. Jesus is telling you that. To deny that Jesus is fully God and fully man, to deny his eternal preexistence before he entered human flesh, to deny the virgin birth or his miracles or his atoning death, or his bodily resurrection, to liberalize Jesus is to call him a liar in Jesus' own words. Jesus knows God, and the proof is that Jesus keeps God's word sinlessly, which is why he has authority to say that you should keep his word. In fact, Jesus has kept God's word on behalf of, in place of, for the benefit of all those who will ever keep Jesus' word of trusting in him alone to be reconciled to God for the forgiveness of our sins. And if you trust him, you will live forever with him, even after you die physically, because God will credit to you all the merit of Jesus that he earned for keeping God's word. So, friend, look again here. Jesus does not bow to how people distort his identity. He's not infinitely plastic or elastic. The Jews didn't change Jesus' mind about who he is. Just because you accuse Jesus of making himself out to be something he's not doesn't make that so. You're not going to convince Jesus that he is not who he says he is. Jesus still knows God, still knows himself, better than you and I know either God the Father or God the Son. And if you do not know God through Jesus, then Jesus says God is not your father. At least not yet. Jesus is not going to lie to you about this, even if you've lied to yourself about it. The real Jesus insists that we take him at his word, on his terms, or not at all, precisely because he knows God better than we do. See, this, this Jesus, he's not the problem. We are the problem. Verse 56 then, Jesus circles back from addressing their question about him to addressing 
their defensiveness for Abraham. It says in verse 56, your father Abraham, you want to mention Abraham? You want to talk about Abraham? Okay, we'll talk about Abraham. Your father Abraham, <laughs> he actually rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So they've just been defensive for Abraham. They felt like this. They had to stick up for Abraham's greatness over against Jesus' claims. But Jesus says Abraham is actually on his side. Jesus is not playing into their hands. He's, they're playing into his hands by mentioning Abraham. Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day. What, what day was that? It was probably the day of Jesus' death and resurrection, which Abraham would have seen and greeted from afar. And when would Abraham have seen that? Probably in both the birth of Isaac, the promised seed of the gospel, and then in receiving Isaac back as if from the dead when God spared him from being sacrificed in Genesis 22. In those types, in those patterns, those events, Isaac's promised and miraculous birth and Isaac's return as if from the dead, Abraham saw the day of Jesus' resurrection as the ultimate son of Abraham, and he was glad. Abraham foresaw Jesus' day in a type, in a pattern, just like Isaiah foresaw Jesus' glory in a vision in John 12. This is one of those instances of Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar. That's how Abraham saw Jesus' day. The Jews were offended at what Jesus' teaching said about Abraham and the prophets, and today people are offended at what Jesus' teaching says about everyone who is not Jesus. Are you really saying that everyone's eternal salvation depends on Jesus? That is ludicrous. That's narcissistic. The Jews wanted to defend the righteousness of Abraham and the prophets. And the modern mind wants to defend every moral identity group that militates against Jesus. The Jews said, surely you are not greater than Abraham. And modernity says to Jesus similar things. Surely you are not greater than Jean-Jacques Rousseau or Sigmund Freud or Karl Marx or W.E.B. Dubois or Margaret Sanger or Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Harvey Milk. Surely they're not greater than them. Or, on the other side of the aisle, surely you are not greater than Edmund Burke or Frederick Douglass or Frederick Hayek or Thomas Sowell. God bless his soul, Thomas Sowell. Sandra Day O'Connor, Harriet Tubman. Surely we say Jesus is not claiming that such leading lights, such patron saints of our worldviews need to align themselves with Jesus for salvation. Yes, Jesus is saying that. He is. If he's saying about Abraham, then he's saying about your historic heroes too. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? What's wrong with that question? They're still misunderstanding him. Jesus didn't say, I saw Abraham. As if it were a privilege for Jesus somehow, to meet a celebrity patriarch from the past. You've seen Abraham? Jesus didn't say that. Jesus said, Abraham saw my day. 
the privilege was all Abraham's. Even though what Abraham saw from afar was only Jesus' day, the time of redemption and resurrection, not Jesus' face. Jesus isn't the one who has privilege to see their father Abraham. Abraham is the one who is privileged just to see the day of Jesus' resurrection power. But Jesus can't, can even use their misunderstanding to teach them. They pick 50 years old as a round number. Maybe a dig that Jesus is too young to know anything as well as they do. But Jesus says, this is a really loose paraphrase, I'm a lot older than I look. Before Abraham ever came to be, I am. In other words, before Jesus ever took on human form or name, even before Abraham was ever born, Jesus existed as the pre-incarnate second person of the Trinity. Jesus is the ancient of days in the flesh. He existed prior to Abraham as the eternal son of God, superior to Abraham, which is just what the Jews were unwilling to admit. You are not greater than our father Abraham. And Jesus here says, yes, in fact, I am. I am. In the fullest meaning of the phrase. Whether he's using God's statement to Moses in Exodus 3 or God's multiple witnesses to his own identity in Isaiah, this is Jesus applying God's identifying words to himself. Jesus is not just quoting scripture here. He's identifying himself with the God of scripture. He's owning God's name for himself. And that is exactly why in verse 59 they picked up stones to throw at him. Stoning was the Old Testament penalty for blasphemy, for talking like your God or a God. Here it's also an impulse to mob justice. Due process seemed moot with Jesus incriminating himself like this in front of so many people in the temple. And this is still how people are tempted to treat Jesus. People still throw stones at Jesus to silence him for being who he says he is. For the modern mind, Jesus simply cannot be who he says he is. Because that would mean that we are not who we think we are. But that does not change what Jesus said about himself and what his identity means for ours. It does not make Jesus a bad person to tell me that I am a bad person. Jesus does not believe any of our criticisms of him. He is not infinitely elastic, able to be stretched or rolled into whatever shape is least offensive to you or me or to the people we're talking with. We have to take him at his word, in his word, in the Bible. This is the truth about him, inconvenient and even maddening as it may feel to us. And yet, his offer of forgiveness still stands. Of course, what you think of that offer of forgiveness depends on who you think you are. And so we are back to where we started with the question of identity. Do you think you are a sinner enslaved to your own sin? Well, then Jesus is the perfect Savior for you. He's who you need. He can free you. He's the son who frees the slaves. But if you have a different understanding of your own identity, then you will be just as offended at Jesus' offer of salvation as these Jews, no matter how kindly he puts it to you. Because you don't think you're the kind of person 
who needs saving. Don't let that be you. Well, they didn't end up stoning Jesus that day, though they did eventually crucify him. But in the very act of condemning him to the cross, he would die the death of a slave that could then free them from their slavery and condemnation that they did not yet realize they endured. Jesus suffered the death that would enable them to not see death if they'd only see him for who he is. For now, they are too busy asking Jesus, who do you think we are? And who do you think you are? And yet his offer still stands. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that even as those who are trusting in Jesus, we implicitly ask you these offended questions when we don't want to take our sins as seriously as you take them. Or forgive us for taking such quick offense at a love that is willing to confront us. We pray, reform us according to your word. May we persevere, each of us, in following Jesus, in following your truth. May your truth, the truth of your gospel, Set us free. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.